NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is moving ever closer to Russia's borders. Russia says NATO has crossed Russia's red line. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today is the second part of our conversation with Eugene Perrier. He is with Breakthrough News. He does the daily podcast Punch-Out and the Freedom Side every Thursday. Eugene, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. All right, let's just quickly summarize. We had a conversation last week. We talked about the fact that there's a growing danger of war between the United States and Russia. Of course, in 2018, after Trump had become president, the Pentagon announced a new doctrine of preparing the United States for major power conflict with Russia and China. Now, that seems crazy because it's crazy. I mean, Russia and China are the other biggest military powers in the world. Russia has 1.5 or 1.4 million troops. It has 5,000 nuclear weapons. I mean, the fact that the United States could be playing chicken with this other major nuclear power on Russia's border is in many ways beyond belief. But if you get your news from CNN, ABC, New York Times, Washington Post, any of the capitalist-owned media, you'll come to the conclusion that Russia is the aggressor because it's amassing 100,000 troops without them ever saying that these troops are being amassed within Russia's own borders. Anyway, Eugene, Biden has just announced that thousands more troops are going to Poland and to Romania. Of course, the United States already has missile defense shields. And by the way, missile defense shields are part of a first strike strategy. They're not about really about defense. But when you think 3,500 more U.S. soldiers against an army that has 1.4 million members, it seems like smoke and mirrors. Anyway, your thoughts? Well, I think you're 100% correct. It's smoke and mirrors, especially for the American people who they don't want to understand the full implications of this policy, but they know, of course, the Russians do understand the full implications. The reality is, is the only true form of deterrence that is existing in Europe, and this has been the case going all the way back to you know the late 1940s, is nuclear deterrence. And when you're a member of NATO, it means that all the other nations are duty-bound to defend you from being a attacked. So when they join NATO, these Eastern European nations, they become a part of the alliance. They're then immediately under the US, UK, French nuclear umbrella, which ultimately means that even a small issue on the border between Russia and whoever, let's say Lithuania, let's say in the case of some, let's say Ukraine did join NATO on the border of Ukraine, any small issue, if Russia then responds in some sort of way, if there's some sort of conflagration, if there's some sort of incident or whatever it may be, it could go from just being a border incident to a nuclear war. 
And that's the whole nature of the policy is to hem Russia in and to use the threat of nuclear power as a cudgel to say, well, listen, we're all around your border. We are willing to defend with nuclear weapons all these various countries. So you better make sure, Russia, that you do the right thing and you do it the way we want you to do it. Because if not, anything that is interpreted as aggression can be interpreted as a form of war, which means it can be interpreted as a situation where Russia would then be faced with the U.S., the U.K., and France, really the majority of the globe's nuclear powers, potentially threatening it with, you know, certainly Russia destroying, but quite frankly, Europe destroying and globe destroying power. But obviously, to say it like that, the policy feels almost genocidal to have this sort of approach over, you know, what in many ways are very simple to resolve questions where there are relatively clear ways to deconflict, to take a step back from the brink, to establish peace in Europe. All of the sort of lines in which that could happen are well known. The U.S. doesn't want to meet them. And instead of meeting them and having peace, they are willing to risk nuclear war, all really to surround him in and control Russia's policies in Europe. And quite frankly, as a message for Russia in terms of its policies around the world. Yeah, I think it's so important, the points that you're making. When you think about what Russia's demanding, they're demanding Ukraine not come into NATO, and they're demanding that no advanced weapons with short flight times be placed in Ukraine or in the other Eastern and Central European countries. That's their demand. It's pretty simple. And the United States says, look, you, Russia, are violating Ukrainian sovereignty because only Ukraine should be able to determine who its allies are or who its military partners are. You, Russia, don't have that, that right. We, America, don't believe in spheres of influence because Russia is demanding that Ukraine somehow be part of its sphere of influence. We don't believe in spheres of influence. But then you think, where is Biden sending these troops? Where are those missiles going? They're going to Estonia, Latvia. Lithuania. These were the former republics of the Soviet Union. These are other component parts of Russia's principal allies. What is Ukraine, formerly part of the Soviet Union? I mean, when you incorporate all of these former parts of the Soviet Union, where, of course, Russia was the anchor, into NATO, what is that but a sphere of influence? Again, It's such a mockery of language, such a semantical battle. But of course, these are the talking points to convince the American people. I mean, I don't think you really have to convince Ukrainians. And by the way, Ukrainians are like, no, we don't want to be a pawn in your geostrategic chess game because if there's a war, we die. It's not people in Chicago who are going to die or Pittsburgh. It's going to be we who die. Anyway, this whole, you know, sort of thought about sovereignty. And again, the Russian demands are simple demands. They want a basic security arrangement that says to the NATO powers and to the United States, you can't set up all of your advanced weapons on our border. Now, when you think about the intermediate range missiles, the ones that have flight times of six minutes or four minutes or three minutes, the U.S. had agreed to take those kind of missiles out of Europe a long time ago during Gorbachev Reagan era. Anyway, go ahead. I think that's a very good point. And I think the spheres of influence point is, you know, really underscored by the fact when you look at the issue of what the United States responded when there was at least sort of a brief conversation about the possibility of Russia in a form of retaliation, strengthening its existing cooperation with Nicaragua, Cuba and Venezuela. The U.S. was up in arms and saying that they were going to take aggressive action. And in fact, you know, a huge part of why the United States has built up a policy of deterrence against countries like Venezuela is they say, well, they're working with the 
Iran and they're allowing Hezbollah. And, you know, a lot of that obviously is ginned up. A lot of it is sort of propaganda effect. But I think the basic point being when it comes to South America, when it comes to Latin America, more specifically, the United States says, well, no one has a right to have any sort of military doings or force or even economic relations with countries we don't agree with in that region of the world. Because as Biden said, this is America's front yard. He actually traditionally it's known as America's backyard, but he actually said, no, it's our front yard. So he actually upgraded the concept of spheres of influence as it concerns the Western Hemisphere, which, of course, goes all the way back to the Monroe Doctrine. But then they say to Russia, you have no sphere. You can have no influence at all. Forget spheres of influence. You can have no real influence in any way, shape or form in the region in which you live. And I think it's interesting to look at these parallels. And I know we'll get back into the history of it. But really, you can stretch all the way back to the beginning of NATO. And it's very similar issues. So whether we're talking about, you know, what with the Biden doctrine now, the national defense strategy, which you mentioned in the Trump administration, you know, the Wolfowitz doctrine, which came at the end of the Cold War, the Carter doctrine, the containment policy. I mean, the entire so many, period. So many doctrines. So many doctrines, so many policies. Post-World War II, the entire period, the United States has been engaged in this effort to keep Russia, previously the Soviet Union, and anyone else, quite frankly, from having any influence in geopolitical affairs that the United States potentially does not like, no matter what the cost may be in terms of the human cost or potential human cost in the case of nuclear war. Well, one of the reasons we wanted to do this follow-up conversation from last week is we want to talk about the history of NATO. Where it comes from, I think a lot of people probably don't have a clue. They think maybe NATO was, I don't know, maybe was ordained by God, that somehow (laughs) NATO just appeared and it will remain forever. But NATO has a very, very particular history. And, And one of the ways I want to start this conversation, Eugene, is people are reminding those who are sort of taking Russia's side in the argument are making the point that the United States, James Baker in particular, who was then Secretary of State when German reunification was on the table in 1990, 1991, promised Gorbachev that if the Russians, the Soviets, allowed German reunification to take place, that NATO would not move one inch east and that they violated their promise. They violated their promise. But I think that that kind of begs the question, If the Soviet Union collapsed, if Germany was reunified, if the Warsaw Pact, which was the Soviet military alliance that mirrored the NATO military alliance, if that collapsed, maybe the issue shouldn't have been whether NATO was going to move one inch eastward. Maybe the issue really should be, why does NATO exist? If it was to stop a Soviet invasion of Europe and the Soviet Union was gone, And if its allies were moving into the camp of the United States and Europe, why should NATO exist? And that, I think, is a good way to start to examine why NATO existed in the first place. Mm -hmm. And let's just kind of go over some of that history. I mean, NATO was formed in 1949, and it was formed at the Pentagon. There was a meeting at the Pentagon. So the United States wins World War II. Britain and France are its allies. Of course, France was under the occupation of Nazi Germany. But Britain, of course, a principal ally. Germany and Italy were the enemies of the United States. But the United States moves into Europe with the Marshall Plan, basically puts all of these capitalist countries back on their feet, not just their allies, but their enemy too. Germany is put back on its feet. 
And then the United States begins the process of incorporating all of these European countries into a military alliance that only the United States itself could lead. And of course, the presentation was the United States had to do it because otherwise the Soviet Union was going to invade and occupy Western Europe. Now, when you think about it, the Soviet Union did invade Europe because it launched this biggest counteroffensive in human history against the Nazis when it expelled the Nazi German armies from the Soviet Union, and it could have kept going, but it didn't. Instead, it came to an accommodation, and there were summits at, at, at in Tehran, at Yalta. Potsdam, of course. Potsdam, you had Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt meeting together, and they were talking about how Europe and how the world was going to look at the end of the war, because they could see the war was going to come to an end. So if the war ends in 1945, and there's this accommodation and Stalin and the Soviet leadership have agreed to it, why on earth would the Soviet Union, having just lost 27 million people, be prepared to have World War III in Europe? I mean, on its face, it makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, I think on its face, it makes no sense. And I think in reality, we actually have the information from the time in the late 1940s that there, in fact, were almost, in fact, Almost every American ambassador in the Soviet Union in the late 1940s thought, and in really the early 1950s, Russia did not want a war. You had the hardcore anti-Soviet Herbert Hoover who goes there right after World War II. He says that they don't want a war. Dwight Eisenhower, by the way, said that they don't want a war. So we know, you know, almost with a surety that even within the high councils, even George Keenan, the hardcore Cold Warrior, said that he didn't think that the Russians wanted a war. So in the high councils and the private councils of the U.S. government, it was 100% clear that a war was never the issue. But I think we have to really understand what was at stake in the context of World War II and how elites in the United States were responding to that because it speaks to why they had to gin up what was obviously a fake war threat in order to create the Cold War. Because when you look at what was happening in the world historic changes that are coming through World War II, the American leadership, as it were, and this starts to happen during the war, in fact, starts to, you know, elite American leadership starts to feel that. Good things are happening in the one sense, that the possibility of the collapse of the colonial empires of England and France is going to happen. And it's you know already happening. The United States military, in the course of entering the war, starts to actually occupy a number of these former British and French colonies, or at least pseudo-occupy them, as it were, in terms of their only ability to survive being tied to the U.S. military machine. And for the U.S. capitalist establishment, this is good. Because one thing that's important to note about the colonial empires is they were also exclusive economic spheres. So, and, so just to, for our audience, just to understand. So the United States is against British colonialism or French colonialism because all of its colonies in the Middle East or Asia or Africa belong only to the Brits, only to the French. In other words, it's their monopoly. And the U.S. wants part of that pie. Exactly. And it drives up the cost for the United States capitalists. They can only do but so much. You know, you want to make tires. You need rubber from Malaya. Britain controls Malaya. They set the terms of trade. It's going to be more expensive to get that rubber than perhaps if Malaya was an independent country or semi-independent country and you could deal with them in a different way. So on the one hand, they want to see the collapse of these empires, which they actually have a sort of unity of purpose with the Soviet Union, which because of its socialist ideology had an anti-colonial stance and also wanted to see the collapse of these colonial empires. Of course, 
Britain and France don't want to see that under any cost. So during the war, they're trying to maneuver to try to do as much as possible to make sure that they could preserve as much of as possible of their previous reality. So you have a situation for the United States where they are obviously in a preeminent position. The Western European countries are totally destroyed, totally prostrate before the United States, can only survive with U.S. aid that's coming in. So they're controlled by them. But then you also have a situation whereby the U.S. starts to, or elements within the U.S., I don't want to say starts to, already did, then kind of recognize that they have some common accord with France and England that's maybe even a little greater than the Soviet Union as capitalist nations all of a sudden because they have the same issue. That even though there's a slight identity of interest in an anti-colonial perspective, it's for various different reasons. The Soviet Union wants to promote national liberation. The United States wants to promote the penetration of the free market, the American system into the through the free market to all these other countries. The Americans want neocolonialism. The Americans want neocolonialism. And so then functionally what you have is a situation where the existence of the Soviet Union then becomes a lever by which countries can be more independent and resist neocolonialism. So the more the Soviet Union is ultimately not contained, the more the progressive peoples of Western Europe and around the world are able to use both the Soviet example in terms of how they organize their own economies, but the idea of peace and friendship on a worldwide basis, the sort of traditional basis of the United Nations, the more it'll be difficult for the United States to impose its writ and its will and take whatever it wants when it wants in the guise of this new imperialist force. So you start to see, really as soon as Roosevelt dies, a big switchover in American policy. And it sort of goes back and forth in different ways until the Korean War, which I know we'll get to. But you have this push where the U.S. starts to break the agreements of Yalta and break the agreements of Potsdam, which were predicated 100% on the idea that the Soviet Union had legitimate security interests. And that the Soviet Union and the U.S. could retain their alliance after the war. Exactly. And so what the U.S. then does is they, well, there's a few things that are kind of minor, but the bigger issue is they immediately end Lend-Lease, and then they essentially refuse to provide post-war aid to the Soviet Union to help them rebuild. And then they also start to move back on the question of German reparations. And through the agency of the French, they prevent the Potsdam Agreement on Reparations from coming into being. And so essentially the U.S. says in 1945, 46, 47, under no circumstances, are we going to allow the Soviet Union to have any breathing space, as it were? In the post-World War II era, we're going to make it as difficult as possible for them to rise, which obviously to the Soviets is a signal that the U.S. wants to pursue an aggressive policy. And then that opens up a whole range of various different things, including the so-called Berlin blockade that leads to the formation of NATO, you know, to some degree. And then really, you ultimately have the road wide open to the Korean War because the U.S. people do not really want a war with the Soviet Union. People are very war-weary after World War II. And so there's this huge push on to demonize the Soviet Union. Obviously, some people are on board with it, but a lot of people feel these are our allies. Why aren't we collaborating with them? We just had this great collaboration under the leadership of Franklin Roosevelt. Why don't we just continue and keep the good times rolling for everybody? And it really wasn't until the start of the Korean War that they were able to start to shift that mass consciousness and create the space and the basis for the major remilitarization and rearmament of the country and the solidification of the Cold War. Yeah. And on the home front, that required the witch hunt. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had to persecute the socialists, persecute the communists, persecute those who wanted to maintain a U.S.-Soviet alliance, the wartime alliance during peacetime. And of course, the execution of the Rosenbergs for presumably giving the Soviets yeah. the secret of the atomic bomb. And I should say, sorry, just to add, but because yeah. you made the point about West Germany, we know from the documents that Beetle Smith, who was a major U.S. military person, told Dwight Eisenhower at the time, we will never agree 
to German reunification on the basis, any basis that the Soviets would agree. So this whole idea that is around the formation of NATO, that the Stalin was hardening the divisions between Germany and forcibly dividing Germany, completely false and completely fake. It was the U.S. interest that created the fait accompli there. Yeah, this is, this is so important because there was the Berlin crisis in 1948, and the U.S. airlifts Berlin. Now, just for people to understand the geography of Berlin. So at the end of World War II, Germany is divided into zones of military occupation. There's a Soviet zone, there's a U.S. zone, there's a British zone, there's a French zone. And basically, the dividing line is in the middle between the eastern part of Germany and the western part of Germany. But in the eastern part of Germany is Berlin. Mm -hmm. So Berlin has partly an American, British, and French influence, but it's inside the Soviet zone. That's important because ultimately, this division of Germany becomes hardened into the creation of two new states, the German Democratic Republic, the Socialist East Germany, and Germany, the West German government, which is, of course, aligned with NATO. Now, that's important because NATO and the United States always have a foothold inside of East Germany because Berlin, which was universally occupied by the, the victors in World War II is actually inside East Germany. Mm -hmm. It's not between East and West Germany. Some people think Berlin is the center between East and West. No, Berlin is in East Germany. That becomes important later when there's the blockade and finally the Berlin Wall, which again is a widely misunderstood topic. But I want to emphasize for those who may not have paid careful attention to the history, or if you're getting your news again from the American media, you won't understand anything. The Soviets' foreign policy at the end of World War II was not expansionist. It was not revolutionary. It was not radical. It was not confrontational. It was, in fact, very conservative. And I want to give a few examples so that people really grasp how conservative this foreign policy was. Mm -hmm. The two main resistance armies in France and Italy that defeated the Nazi occupiers were led by communist parties that were affiliated or politically associated with the Soviet Union. They could have made a bid for power right then and there. They were the only existing armed force capable of being a new government. In Greece, the communists had an uprising against the pro-British government in Greece Stalin and the Soviet Union were not supportive of revolutions in Italy or France or Greece. In fact, in Greece, the Soviets did not provide military assistance to the communist guerrillas, and eventually they were destroyed. Yeah. In China, at the end of World War II, there's two major powers in China. One is led by Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist, the Kuomintang, and the other is led by Mao Zedong, the Communist Party, the Red Army. Now, the Red Army at that time, Mao's army, controlled vast parts of China, but Stalin insisted, along with the United States and Britain, that there was only one legitimate government in China, and it wasn't the Mao government, it was the Chiang Kai-shek government. So in all ways, in these key areas, Italy, France, China, Greece, you can see that the Soviets have a conservative foreign policy. What's the motivation for their conservatism? Why is Stalin so non-revolutionary in 1945, because he does not want a confrontation with the West. 27 million people had just died. The 27 million destroyed. Soviets have died. So what does the Soviet Union want above all else? They want peace. Mm -hmm. And they want to rebuild their country. They want to reconstruct their country. The last thing they want is to invade 
Western Europe, but it's premised on this notion that was sold to the American people or repressively impacted the American people's consciousness through the witch hunt that the Soviets were on the march. In fact, it was just the opposite. No, I think that's 100% true. I mean, I'm glad you brought up the issue of Greece because, I mean, that was a major issue in the post-war discussions between the major powers where the Soviet Union was willing to acquiesce to the idea of Mediterranean countries maintaining a sort of government post-war that would leave them in a particularly British, but to some degree French sphere of influence because for them, they felt this is sort of the key communication trade route for their old imperial empires in exchange for a recognition by the Western powers that in Romania and Hungary and in Poland, the anti-fascist alliances that had cropped up during World War II, which were obviously friendly to the Soviet Union, would be allowed to come to power in recognition of Soviet security concerns. So they were willing to make quite a few concessions. They were also willing to make a concession in the United Nations, by the way, not to use their veto on the agenda and other things like that to give the United States and the United Kingdom sort of pole position in setting the agenda for how the United Nations is rolled out. I mean, again and again and again, they were looking to find different ways. As we already recognize, they wanted to have a unified, denazified government in Germany. And in fact, this was the basis of the Potsdam Agreement. And when you look at how all these divisions ultimately happened that hardened the division of Germany, it really all results back to this issue that comes in Potsdam of reparations from Germany to the Soviet Union, which at Potsdam, all everyone agreed was you know, 100% justified, given that the Nazis had just done this terrible destruction. But because the United States, through the agency of France, obstructed the transfer of certain critical equipment from Germany to the Soviet Union, as agreed at Potsdam, as a form of reparations, the Soviet Union more and more had to do things to defend not only its quote-unquote sphere of influence for its security concerns, but also the ability to keep any way to be able to gain reparations from the point of view of World War II in Germany and other places and to really ultimately defend the things that everyone allegedly was agreeing to at Potsdam. So, you know, the U.S. was continually making agreements and continually breaking them as the Soviet Union was giving more and more concessions. And ultimately, Stalin and the Soviets said, "Okay, no more concessions. And then things harden. And then you end up, you know, sort of where we were with the hard lines that exist in Europe. And now I want to move to the Korean War because... This is a part of the world where whatever the position was of the Soviet leadership, the revolutionary impulse, the revolutionary reflex of the Korean people could not be contained. And in fact, after 1945, and just so people understand, Dean Rosk, who later becomes Secretary of State during the Kennedy administration, he is 38 years old, along with another American military officer. They take a, a magic marker at the end of World War II, and they draw a line across the Korean peninsula. One part is going to be an American zone, and the northern part would be the Soviet zone. And they draw it about 30 miles north of Seoul, the capital of Korea, so that the U.S. has the politically most important part of Korea. And then the two countries agree they're going to stay with their occupation forces in Korea until 1948. So from 19, September 1945 till 1948. The Soviets leave in 1948, and the United States also left in 1948. The United States did not really consider Korea to be as important as other parts of the Asia Pacific. So American troops and Soviet troops both leave Korea in 1948. But inside of Korea is this cauldron of revolution that's going on, where the workers and the peasants and the young people who have been struggling for freedom and independence from Japanese colonialism 
and certainly want to be free and unified as a country, not, not under colonial domination, their raging class struggle bursts out. And the South Korean government represses them. There's terrible massacres. But, you know, once the foreign troops are out of Korea altogether, inevitably that social convulsion, that class war breaks into the open. And sure enough, in June 1950, on June 25th, 1950, the struggle breaks out and North Korea comes into the southern part of Korea. And within three days, there's so much popular support for Kim Il-sung and the North Korean guerrillas and the North Korean armies and people's committees are being formed all over Southern Korea. Within three days, that army is at the southern tip of Korea. So unlike Italy or unlike France or Greece, that revolutionary process has its own life. Regardless, I think that if Stalin and the Soviet leadership could have said, look, let's not have a revolution in Korea either, they would have done it, but they couldn't control it. Like Vietnam, like Korea, like Indonesia, eventually like China four years later, the revolution in Asia becomes the tipping point. And the revolution, which is anti-colonial in character, is led by communist parties like Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam or Kim Il-sung. And the Korean War really becomes extremely important for NATO. This is why we're doing this whole step back, because NATO then is convinced and the West is convinced that the communists are indeed on the march because of what almost happened with the total victory of communist forces in North Korea. And all of the countries in the world take a position. So all the pro-Western capitalist countries support the United States as it leads an invasion of Korea. And the Soviet Union and China and Poland and Bulgaria and Romania and Czechoslovakia and East Germany, they all support North Korea. So in this little tiny part of the world, the Korean Peninsula, you have this global class conflict breaks out and it appears to be an internal civil war or perhaps a war between countries but in fact it's a class war on one side all the socialist countries are supporting the workers and peasants and the communists and on the other other side the imperialists led by the united states are are supporting the elites that's one when nato really becomes dominating for u.s policy and two, it's when the military-industrial complex is formed in the United States, because after World War II, the U.S. demobilized the military. But with the Korean War showing that there was a, going to be a global class war, and one social system or the other was bound to win or die, now the U.S. adopts a position of full-scale and permanent militarization. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. And I think that, you know, I.F. Stone lays this out very well in his hidden history of the Korean War about how the military industrial complex, you know, in a major way was able to exploit the you know, previous statement by the Democratic Party at that time to support full employment because of the pressure of the trade unions and essentially was offering, in a way, a way to full employment in the United States by locking in the Cold War and locking in permanent military expenditures. And I think, you know, you can see in the entire way, and I referenced that book, The Hidden History of the Korean War by I.F. Stone, very very directly, because when you really read that book, it shows how Douglas MacArthur became an absolute political actor. And at every point of the Korean War was doing his absolute best to create the perception of communist aggression where there was none. And as you said, in a country where, quite frankly, there was a people's government that was coming to power, that was going to come to power, almost irrespective of anything else. I mean, Sigmund Rhee and these other people, they were fascist sympathizers. You know, they had no currency in the country. That's the South Korean government. The South Korean government. 
government. They have no currency in the country whatsoever, so it's sort of bound to happen. You've got forces in the United States who are saying that this sort of containment strategy in Asia should start at Japan and Korea should just be left to do its thing because like China, there are internal processes that cannot be stopped because they're not about external communist aggression. They're about the reality not of Not a conspiracy in hatched in Moscow. Exactly. These are indigenous class struggles that are raging. So some people in the U.S. State Department recognized this and said, well, we don't have to be the enemy of Mao yes. or, or, or Ho Chi Minh or Kim Il-sung. These are people fighting to reunify their country. Yes, they are communists, but they're not motivated from common turn orders or dispatches from Moscow. Exactly. I mean, and so MacArthur and Dulles had to create, one, create the perception that there was a sneak attack, which was, you know, not really the case. That in and of itself, as Stone lays out, was certainly ginned up. And then throughout the course of the war, they're consistently carrying out their propaganda in such a way to make it seem more aggressive than it really is, to make people want to fight the communists even more because they seem more and more nefarious. And so just, you know, end over end, you can see the uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, the feedback loop that exists that strengthens this Cold War propaganda that even though this is in Asia, becomes critically important for what is happening in Europe because it's creating the mental terrain, if you will, by which the American people move from seeing the Soviet Union as an ally. And this was widely written about in major new uh, American papers in the late 1940s about how people in a big way did not want a new war and generally felt like we just worked together this was good. So a new war was necessary to break the bonds of unity that had been created in the country around the United Nations Pact to defeat the Nazis. And I think that is why the Korean War plays such an important role in the broader history of how the Cold War gets started in Europe as well as Asia. Exactly. So really important for everyone to remember about this. North Atlantic Treaty Organization is clearly not in the Korean Peninsula. Mm -hmm. It's not in Asia. It's not in the Pacific. It's the North Atlantic. But it's really a political and social formation led by U.S. imperialism, which it's not a manufactured crisis in one way, because it's a manufactured consent, as Chomsky says, in terms of how people perceive the events. But there really is a raging global class struggle. And people in Africa want to be free. And people in Indonesia, you know, people in Malaysia, in India, class struggle is going on everywhere. And suddenly, because the Soviet Union is no longer isolated, it's not a, the single and sole socialist country, because it's part of a camp that includes East European countries, some of which are quite advanced industrially, mm -hmm. certainly East Germany and Czechoslovakia. And you have this, you know, by 1950, two-fifths of humanity is now living in a country that says our government is communist-led and we're building the path to socialism. And on the other side are the very weakened capitalist countries in Europe mm. who have been devastated by the magnitude of the violence and death and destruction of the war and who are on life support because the U.S. is using the Marshall Program and using NATO and using intervention. It's creating this global capitalist united front under American leadership. But again, without the Americans, all of those countries would have become socialist. Europe yeah. would have become socialist. Anyway, so you have this new, I would say, like a new relationship of forces between the workers and peasants on one side and the capitalists on the other, because now the workers and peasants hold state power in China, in Russia, in Vietnam, in Korea, you know, in Eastern and Central Europe. So 
The workers and peasants, the class that's fighting capitalism organically in the day-to-day class struggle, now has state power. So the struggle appears to be a struggle between nations, the USSR on one side, the United States on the other. But this national sort of form of the struggle masks the social character as a global class struggle. And everywhere in the world, you'll see that wherever the colonized people are moving in the direction of the Soviet Union or in the direction of the socialist camp. America is ready to intervene and fight and destroy them. And at the same time, the U.S. is trying to woo them into the camp of imperialism. And this becomes, I would say, the hallmark of the global struggle at that time. But NATO, it's very important to think about this for everyone. NATO and the socialist camp never fight an actual battle. Mm -hmm. This is important when we think about why does NATO continue to exist today. NATO was necessary for the United States not to stop a Soviet invasion of Europe, but in order to maintain the discipline of an alliance between the United States and the other capitalist powers, where the other capitalist powers are in largely a subservient position because they are a lesser military force within this military alliance. This becomes the dominant part of world politics, or what we call the Cold War, misnamed, but really a global class war. Yeah, no, I think that's right. NATO is an instrument of imperialist policy. It's an instrument designed for containment. It's designed to make sure that the you know so-called Soviet sphere of influence, the socialist camp, the Warsaw Pact, whatever you want to call it, and it has been called many different things during the course of the Cold War, that it remains in its place, essentially, and that they limit its ability to spread. Because as you point out, in Western Europe, there are many people who want more socialist-style governments. They certainly want peace. They certainly want the natural intercourse between Europe East and West, which includes a large chunk of Russia. I mean, it's actually unnatural for the continent to be divided in this way and for there to be an obstruction of the traditional thousands of years of relationships between all these different places. And so sort of the natural trend is away from a policy that will allow the United States to maintain, as you say, that black discipline, to maintain the two spheres of influence on a global scale, which is absolutely necessary for them to be able to exploit the different areas of the developing world, because, of course, people will leverage any gain they can. They were already leveraging the Soviet Union. So imagine if, say, France or if, you know, whatever, some combination of the low countries or someone had entered in more on the side of, you know, anti-colonialism, peace, detente, whatever you want to call it. Obviously, that becomes even more of a leverage point against the, you know, Bretton Woods institutions and their, you know, style of of neo-colonialism through finance and the U.S. military that, of course, was using force to get behind all of these different attempts to dominate the globe. All right, let's move to, I want to leave the history and come back to more, well, it's still history, but a more up-to-date, more contemporary history in a minute in terms of NATO wars after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But I want to talk a little bit about the Warsaw Pact. Now, the Warsaw Pact was the Soviet version of NATO because NATO's formed in 1949 It's kind of like nobody really knows yet how important it will be. Then the Korean War happens and suddenly NATO is like a dominantly important institution for the reasons we've been talking about. Now, in 1954, the Warsaw Pact is formed in 1955. So that includes the Soviet Union, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, and Albania. So this is the Warsaw Pact. So it's a Soviet-led military alliance. And people in the United States, certainly when I was growing up, we were told like NATO is important because it's defending Europe from the Warsaw Pact. Now, what people don't know 
is that the military alliance of the Soviet Union is formed in 1955. But in 1954, Stalin has just died in 1953. In 1954, the Soviet Union asks the United States to join NATO. The Soviet Union asked to join NATO in 1954, and the Soviet Union also proposed that Germany be reunited. You know, this whole thing about East Germany, West Germany, these, the Berlin Wall, the whole image in the West is that the Soviets wanted to keep the Germans divided. But the Germans, the Soviets offered to reunify all of Germany, but make sure it wasn't remilitarized because the Soviets had lost 27 million people, largely to the German invasion. And they want to come into NATO. And the United States says no. And then the Soviet Union forms the Warsaw Pact countries. So we talked about this last week. Mm -hmm. We said like at the end of the Soviet Union, when it collapsed, why wasn't Russia, which is now led by Boris Yeltsin, an American puppet and very weak, why weren't they just brought into NATO? See, it's a very important question for people to understand because my belief is that if the Soviet Union had entered NATO, then the U.S. would have lost the discipline over the European capitalists who would have gravitated in the direction of the Soviet Union, which is their natural you know, trade partner. Just like after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia could have been integrated into NATO, but eventually Russia, when it got back on its feet, would be an economic and political pole that would allow Europe to have an alternative to American hegemonic domination. And I think... That's so important because I think that gets to the nub of why NATO was, in fact, you know, not dissolved in 1991. But again, I think most Americans would have no idea that the Soviet Union asked to be part of NATO in the middle of the Cold War. No, I, I think they would have no, they would have absolutely no idea. And I mean, I think, as you say, it's, you know, certainly consonant with what we've seen since then. I mean, certainly we saw it in, in Helsinki in the 70s. We saw it in the 90s in 1999. We saw it in 2010. That this And this is again coming up now because the Russians have referenced the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe agreements between the US, NATO, and Russia in 1999 and 2010. This idea of an indivisible security that is a Europe-wide security where everyone's concerns are considered and where collectively there are decisions made about how to keep the peace. And this is what the Russians wanted. The Soviets wanted then. It's what the Soviets wanted in the 70s. It's what the Russians wanted in the 90s. It's what the Soviets wanted in the early 90s. It's what the Soviets continue, uh, Russians continue to want now. I mean, it's a very clear, very consistent position coming from the Soviet Union slash Russia over almost the entire period, stretching from the 50s until now, that they want a security architecture that essentially, you know, recognizes that they have real interest, real concerns, and real fears, but that also, you know, where they will recognize that other people have real interests, real concerns and real fears, but that they can sit down together. There can be conversations about it. And it's worth noting that Yeltsin, and this has been revealed, it's honestly stunning to me that there's somehow a discussion in the U.S. media, and certainly this is being promoted by the U.S. State Department and NATO aggressively, that there were never any promises by the U.S. and NATO on Eastern expansion, which is just so fake. It's unbelievable. The National Security Archive in 2017 at George Washington University has revealed a range of documents that show not only Baker 
Every single top leader of France, the UK, and West Germany assured the Soviets, we're not going one second eastward. But even more so, they then subsequently released a second trance of documents that say that the Clinton administration went out of their way to deliberately mislead Boris Yeltsin and to say that we're actually going to work on that kind of shared security strategy. Russia's included in whatever we want to do. At the same time, they're actually planning to expand NATO to the east explicitly against what they're telling Russia at the time. And so ultimately, the US cannot have a strategy of peace in Europe. Because as the Wolfowitz Doctrine said about Western Europe, it's critically important to keep it as a zone of U.S. influence. Right. And so at the end of the day, even though the Soviet Union collapsed, the only way for the United States to assert itself as a unipolar imperialist hegemon is to not only contain Russia, but to prevent in the wake of a peace dividend, Western Europe working closer with the post-Soviet Russia and Eastern Europe and becoming potentially a Eurasian rival to the United States of America, which they absolutely do not want, but which was at least one of the potential options vis-a-vis -vis what could have happened in Europe at that point. So they maintain NATO, they push it to the east and they bamboozle. And, you know, in many ways, I think Yeltsin was open to being bamboozled. He was obviously a fool and an, and an idiot in many ways. Um, You're still just, being generous. I'm being extremely generous, but nevertheless, they went out of their way to try to mislead him and to, you know, essentially recognize that Russia had concerns while trying to undermine them at every single front. Yeah, I agree with you. And so, again, just to summarize, this is this is about control. NATO is about control over Europe and control over Ukraine. And Ukrainians don't want to be a pawn, as we said before, in, in NATO or America's chess game, because, of course, they're not just pawns on a chessboard. They're human beings, and they have lives, and those lives can be lost in the event of any conflict. I want to go and bring things sort of into the more modern era, because, as I mentioned before, while NATO and the Warsaw Pact existed, NATO never went to war, right? There was an equilibrium. There was a sort of a parody. There was what was known in, in the parlance of military think tanks or, you know, people paying attention, mutually assured destruction, mad. The mad phenomena existed that if any either side started a war, both sides would be extinguished because of the nature of nuclear weapons. Now, NATO does go to war after the collapse of the Warsaw Pact. There's no longer symmetry. There's no longer a socialist camp. But the first place that NATO goes to war is in Yugoslavia. Right. Now, all of the countries that have now been incorporated or are being incorporated into NATO that were formerly either republics in the Soviet Union or part of the Soviet alliance, the Warsaw Pact countries, the Eastern and Central European socialist governments, that were overthrown in the same time period, 1988 to 1991, those countries were integrated into Europe and they had capitalist governments. Mm -hmm. The public property of those economies were being privatized and largely bought up by Western powers, EU powers and also the United States. But Yugoslavia was the one holdout. And Yugoslavia, very interestingly, was not part of the Warsaw Pact because Yugoslavia did have a socialist revolution. It did defeat the Nazis, but it did it largely with its own partisan armies led by Tito and the communists in Yugoslavia. They weren't dependent on the Soviet Red Army. They had the Soviet Red Army as an ally, but they weren't dependent on them. It was an indigenous revolution with a lot of indigenous energy from the masses of people, not 
a revolution from the top where somebody else's army shows up and socializes your means of production. This came from below. Mm -hmm. So Yugoslavia, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, even though I don't need to go over all the struggles between Tito and Stalin and all of that, which happened in the 1940s, my point is that Yugoslavia still stood as the sole remaining socialist government in Europe. And then the United States and Britain and France and Germany, all of them, first as individual capitalists and then finally as NATO, went to war and ultimately destroyed Yugoslavia. And Yugoslavia is no more. Mm -hmm. So let's go to 1999. NATO finally has its first war. Yeah. And the NATO powers come to the Milosevic government. Milosevic is completely demonized, right? Yeah. Just the way Saddam was in Iraq, just the way Gaddafi was in Libya, just the way Assad was in Syria. Completely demonized. He was a monster. Worst of the worst. The worst of the worst. And everybody knows you either hate or fear or both when it comes to Milosevic. So the U.S. media at that time, in preparation for the war, right. because the government wasn't going to fall, has to demonize Milosevic in a particular way. They said they were there to defend Muslims in Kosovo, a, a Serbian province. But they finally meet in Ramboye, in the town of Ramboye, and give Milosevic a deal, a peace agreement. And Milosevic says no to the deal. And all of the Western media says, Milosevic the butcher refuses peace, and then NATO starts bombing Yugoslavia. And between the end of March and June 3rd, 1999, NATO drops 28,000 bombs and missiles on Yugoslavia. And I want to read a couple of the words of the agreement, the yeah, peace deal so at Rambaye that Milosevic said no to, which proved that Milosevic was a monster. Here's section seven of the agreement. This was put forward by the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis NATO representatives. NATO personnel shall be immune from any form of arrest, investigation, or detention by the authorities in the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. That's after Yugoslavia has accepted that NATO forces, at least 28,000 of them, will now take over Yugoslavia. Mm. Section 8. NATO personnel shall enjoy, together with their vehicles, vessels, aircraft, and equipment, free and unrestricted passage and unimpeded access throughout the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, including its associated airspace and territorial waters. This shall include but not be limited to the right of bivouac, maneuver, billet, utilization of any areas or facilities as required for support, training, and operations in all of Yugoslavia. NATO is granted the use of its airports, roads, rails, and ports without payment of fees, duties, tolls, or charges. Anyway, yeah. this is like, please give us your country yeah. and immunize our personnel so that no matter what they do to your citizenry, they can kill them, they can rape them, they can do whatever, but they're completely immune from prosecution. Yeah. And we're going to take over your airports and ports and you're going to pay for it. Yeah. And your roads. And I think they had to put them on TV at any time that they wanted oh, to. Oh, yeah. And that's the other part. <laughs> that they, they have to have access to Yugoslav communication. So this was the Rumbaye peace agreement mm -hmm. that that evil Milosevic said no to. Mm. And when he said no, the American media demonized him and said, he wants war. We're going to give him war. And they dropped 28,000 bombs and missiles on mainly Serbia. But it was all of Yugoslavia. And today, Eugene, Yugoslavia is gone. So NATO did it, finally fought a war and destroyed the last remaining socialist government in Europe.
Yes. Well, I mean, it speaks, you know, very heavily to the purpose of NATO that that's the first war that they ever engaged in. And I think, you know, the level of violence that was visited upon them is certainly something that we've seen time and time again from NATO forces. Okay, so let's go to the next invasion. And we don't have to talk much about that because everybody knows. Then two years later, NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, invades Afghanistan, which you know is very close to the North Atlantic. Very, very crucial. So the United States, using NATO, now goes in and 20 years later, the U.S. and NATO are defeated. But 250,000 Afghans are dead, a complete debacle. Again, that's a second NATO war. There's a third NATO war. Eugene, and that was the war against Libya, against the government of Muammar Gaddafi. Libya was, of course, the financier of the Organization of African Unity. Mm -hmm. It has the largest oil reserves in Africa. Highest standard of living of any country in Africa at that time. Yeah. Now, the U.S., starting in March, coincidentally, the same day that the U.S. invaded Iraq, March 19th, 2003, and March 19th, 2011, begins the bombing of Libya, and that, again, is NATO. Yep. Now, I just looked up before the show, I wanted to see what NATO said about casualties. Mm. How many bombs and missiles did NATO drop on Libya? A country of 5 million people. Right. That would be 7,700 bombs and missiles. 7,700 bombs and missiles on Libya. North Atlantic? Not the North Atlantic. Yeah, right. (laughs) Okay, how many civilian casualties were there? This is... A trick question. I couldn't even tell you. Zero. Oh, wow. The Pentagon has announced Truly that there, precision guy. there were no civilian casualties as wow. the U.S. dropped 7,000 bombs amazing. and missiles. In like on. seven months, nine months, something yeah. like that. And finally, Gaddafi is destroyed. So NATO has its third war. Yep. So it destroys Yugoslavia. It kills a lot of Afghans and loses. It destroys the Libyan government. But today, Libya is a mess. Yes. I mean- Slavery returned to Libya. Yeah. I mean, countries completely divided, completely destroyed, infrastructure totally gutted in every possible way. I mean, it's a, it's a disaster. When you look at this history, the initial history in the 40s, the 50s, and you look at the contemporary history of what NATO's wars are, you can't but come to the conclusion that NATO is an enemy of peace, mm-hmm. that NATO is simply an instrument of imperialism and an instrument of war. And as such, isn't about defense, it's about aggression. And we, people in the United States, and particularly those in the anti-war movement, should demand its abolition because there is no possible progressive or just reason for the existence of this military alliance. I think that's 100% true. I mean, NATO can barely come up with a reason for its own existence. I mean, four or five years ago, they were, you know, we're for counterterrorism, we're for this, we're for that, because when there was a brief sort of period of slight detente in the latter half of the Obama administration with Russia, then the complete and total worthlessness of NATO started to become more and more clear. And I think it's deeply notable that as the U.S. has switched over during the Trump administration, the national defense strategy to the idea of great power competition now being the biggest challenge for the United States, that the idea of NATO becoming bigger and stronger has come back full force because NATO only exist as an instrument to continue to push forward this idea of unipolar U.S. hegemony, and that ultimately it can only find a reason to exist in that context, and thus it has found a new reason to exist and to grow since the onset of this new Cold War-style atmosphere with Russia. It's a saber-rattling, nuclear saber-rattling tool that only really can bring us closer and closer to the brink of actual war as opposed to any form of peace, and the entire idea of NATO's existence and expansion just goes, you know, to completely scuttle the idea 
idea of any sort of collective European security, which, of course, is extremely dangerous for the world. And the other notable thing, and I want to, as we start to wrap up here, I want to talk about the political terrain, because we have in Congress basically a bunch of imperialists. Yep. I mean, when you listen to the to the members of Congress in the House or the Senate speak, I mean, they're rabid cold warriors. Yep. I mean, Robert Menendez was talking about, we're going to cripple Russia, we're going to crush its economy. I mean, this is Menendez, who also wants to crush the Cuban economy. Yep. The same criminal, criminally charged, let me yeah, put it that yeah, way, criminally yeah, charged right. Robert Menendez. Anyway, but he's not alone. He's like, in the main, the voices. And then you think about the people who are liberals. Mm-hmm. Some of them call themselves social democrats. So you have the squad, you have AOC, you have Bernie. You know, the people who really constitute the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. When you think about the possibility that there could be a major conflict between the United States and Russia in order to defend NATO's right to Mm -hmm. expand against Russia, when Russia's demand is completely, whether you like Putin, don't like Putin, whatever you think about Putin, I think if Putin wasn't the president, any Russian president would take the same position that we don't want missiles that have a flight time of two or three minutes to be put on our border. And to prove that you're 100% correct, this became a huge issue between Yeltsin and Clinton in 1994 because Yeltsin was essentially saying, there's no way anyone could lead this country taking the positions you want me to take of acquiescing to NATO and the idea that it looks like I'm just allowing you to move forward, which in fact leads to a decision in the United States to delay some elements of NATO expansion until after the 1996 elections that it looks like the communists were going to win because as you say, it's not credible that the Russian people would back any government that seems to just be completely and totally disregarding what, quite frankly, is over 100 years of legitimate fears in Russia of invasions coming from the West that have been deeply destructive in the history of the country. It's just not credible. It's not about Putin's expansionism. It's about the history of Russia, which is why time and time again, these flashpoints in Europe seem very, very similar in terms of the conversation, in terms of the the situation. And like I said, why there's a consistent through line in the Soviet and the Russian thinking about what's allowed, because it's not random. It's actually based on the, you know, to use a term that's much in currency now, the lived experience of people in Russia. Indeed. Russians lost three million in World War One. Then 14 imperialist armies invaded when the, when the Bolsheviks took power. Another three million died in that civil war. That's six million. And then the Soviets lose 27 million between 1941 and 1945. By the way, I was looking at statistics of the demographics. The population of young Russian males age 17 to 21 in 1941 versus 1945, about 93% of them died. Yeah. I mean, that's an entire generation wiped out, right? So this is like part of what all Russians think, not just Putin, not just the big, bad, autocratic Putin, as he's called in the Western media. This is a lived experience of Russian people. And so the idea that Putin or any government would say, Yes, in the name of Ukrainian sovereignty or the right of NATO to pick its own partners, they're going to allow Ukraine, which was the second largest republic of the Soviet Union, has a big Russian-speaking population historically tied to Russia. Kiev was at one time the capital of Russia. I mean, to allow that territory to be a place where the U.S. could put intermediate-range missiles, missiles that would fly three to 600 miles to their targets and have a flight time of a couple minutes at most. No, they're not going to allow it. Why is it so hard 
Why is it so hard? I'm going to ask you this, Eugene, as the final question. Why is it so hard for Joe Biden or the others to say yes to Russia? We're going to, you know, guarantee that this won't be happening to you. And, you know, Reagan agreed to it in 1986 with Gorbachev. That's Ronald Reagan, the mm -hmm. right wing militarist, anti-Soviet, anti-communist. And where's AOC and Bernie Sanders? Like, why not use the power that you have, that these people have among progressive forces to sound the alarm? It's because the anti-Russian demonization is so profound that even the progressives in Congress have, well, if they're not afraid to speak, they haven't been speaking very loudly. Yeah. But all of us have to speak loudly right now in order to prevent imperialism from carrying out another catastrophe. Look at Korea, look at Vietnam, look at Iraq, look at Afghanistan, look at Libya, look at Syria. These are real conflicts where millions of people die and the threat of an even larger war is real. That's why I feel, and I'm going to give you the last word, nothing could be more important right now than going into the streets. I think that you're right. I mean, I think what people have to realize is this is not like a frozen conflict in the sense that it's often said in the U.S. media. This is an active war zone there in eastern Ukraine. There's all sorts of artillery and other things that are lobbed back and forth all the time, quite frankly, between both sides. So the possibility of something that seems small in this context with all of the global hysteria around it, you know, an errant shell could kick off a war. And if people don't think that that's the case, they should recognize that it is absolutely the case that there's almost nothing right now to stop that since the U.S. has gotten out of almost every single agreement. So there's very little sort of peace and security architecture that exists that could potentially act as a tripwire here. So any small incident could become a big incident, and they're just putting more and more kindling on the fire. They're drier and drier branches, and all it takes is one spark, and everything can just go up in a huge conflagration. So I think for people who feel that nuclear war sounds like a terrible idea, idea. Because again, there's no deterrence in Europe other than nuclear deterrence. So anything that escalates between NATO and Russia means it could escalate right to the edge and almost certainly to nuclear war. And so ultimately, if you think that turning the globe into a pile of radioactive ash is a bad idea, I think it's important for people to raise their voice and to say something, because obviously no one in the U.S. Congress is going to do or say anything, and certainly not in the White House or in Whitehall. Well, we're going to come back. We're going to keep talking about this crisis. Again, there's many crises in the world, but this is so important and the stakes are indeed so high. Eugene Perrier, thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.